the sound of my dad and me throwing a baseball back and forth at a park in Pennsylvania. This is the sound of my dad being surprised and learning that he was going to have a granddaughter. This is the sound of him giving a lecture at Lehigh University, where he taught in the school psychology department since I was a baby. So the question that I, I asked, next slide please. This is the sound of him breathing on the bed in the hospice three years ago, a few days before he died. They're not gonna let you suffer. Yeah. Not, there's not gonna be pain. That's my brother and my mom. This is from a video I shot of him, but I don't want you to see the video. I only want you to hear it. Suddenly, going from working to sick situation, I never had a conversation with HR about it. And this is me now, staring at his name on my phone. It's right there with all the others, right next to my brother Dan and a friend from my fantasy baseball league named Craig. It just says Dad. And there's a little photo next to it of him smiling, holding up a Jimmy Rollins Philadelphia Phillies spring training jersey. He looks happy in the photo. He doesn't know that he's sick. The cancer in his lung was probably tiny then, maybe the size of a pea or a marble. I'm glad he didn't know. It's just ones and zeros in my hand. I could erase it with a swipe. The phone number has been assigned to someone else at this point, I'm sure. I wonder what would happen if I called it. The person probably wouldn't pick up. They probably would think it was a telemarketer. I would. I wonder if I've ignored a call from someone trying to reach a ghost who once had the number I now do. I could leave a message, I guess, to a stranger. A stranger who has my dad's phone number now. Here's what I remember about the first phone call. It was a call from home, not mom or dad. That wasn't entirely unusual. Sometimes mom would call me from the landline. When I answered and realized that both my mom and my dad were on the line together, I had a feeling that something serious was going on. They rarely called me together like that. I think my mom was the one who first said they went to the doctor and they found something troubling. They were downplaying it big time though. Even the tone in their voices was trying to assure me that this really wasn't a big deal. I don't even remember if they used the word cancer in the conversation. I think they always said cancerous. Something about a thing that is cancerous sounds less serious than just saying cancer. I don't remember being that worried during that call. Their trick must have worked. They assured me it was something that could be serious, but they found it very early and they were going to do a few more tests and things like that. They quickly turned the conversation back to me and my life. I was in the post-production process on a documentary film which had me traveling around the world rather extensively. That's what I do. Documentary film. It's a profession that always made my dad nervous since it can be unpredictable and unstable, and it's a profession that made my mom nervous because it makes me travel to places that can be unpredictable and unstable. When my grandfather was dying at a more normal age in his 80s, I brought a little Digital 8 Handycam to his nursing home and filmed a couple of interviews with him and my family around. Is there anything that you wish you could have done in your life? Like, go well, skydiving or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I never was interested in skydiving. <laughs> what, what have been the most important things? That's my dad asking him that question about what was most important to him. The family. Just getting together 
with the family. That was the most important thing. That's about it. You want to wrap it up? Wrap it up. All right. Wrap up time. Call it a wrap. Okay. It's a wrap. I think my dad's answer may have been the same if I had gotten a chance to ask him. That was the plan, though. That little documentary I made about my grandfather was a treasure for the family, and I was supposed to make one about my dad. I showed my grandfather's documentary at my aunt's house on the anniversary of his death. Everyone cried. My grandmother did, too. Every time I would call her until her death two years later, I would hear the documentary playing in the background. It always made me happy to hear that. A couple days after my parents first called me with the not-that-big-of-a-deal cancerous news, I was talking to my older brother on the phone. He asked me if mom and dad had told me about his health issue. I shrugged it off and relayed to him that they told me that it wasn't that big of a deal. There was a bit of a pause, and then he asked me if I had looked it up on the internet. The phone calls over the next few months got progressively worse. It turns out the cancer was large in his lung, maybe the size of a ping-pong ball, maybe more. But my parents would reassure me that it was still very early, and if they could just get in there and cut it out, everything would be fine. My brother kept looking it up. Sometimes he would tell me the survival rates for this kind of thing. It was getting close to 50%. One time during that final year, he and my mom came to visit me in an apartment they hadn't seen in Brooklyn. We were still trying to pretend everything was normal. My parents came up to my place, and immediately my dad looked for things to criticize. He mentioned the dust on my air conditioner a few times. He was trying to put out the bait for some kind of fight where he would remind me that he was my parent. I wasn't taking it. When we left to walk to the restaurant and meet a girl I had begun dating, he broke down and started crying. He held me really tight. I held I held him back. He said sorry and that he was scared. I told him I understood. By the time we got to the restaurant, he had received an email from a colleague who heard that he was sick. He was suddenly very angry at whoever must have told him. He didn't want anyone to know, and no one really did. He had to go to the bathroom to calm his nerves. He sent me an apology for his behavior during that visit to my email the next morning. I tried to write back but couldn't quite get it into words, so I just recorded a little message for him. This was part of it. Hey, Dad. There's nothing that you need to apologize for because I like I don't I don't care <laughs> you know you're allowed at this moment you have a get out of jail free car a little bit which you shouldn't abuse as you know but you have one that you really we all understand and I understand um, and I'm sort of rambling now so I'll probably wrap it up but. Um, <laughs> Just know <laughs> how much I love you and how much um, I'll be here for you. And we'll all be here for you during this time. And, and that I never want to hear the words sorry come out of your mouth again. So I'll be right here and uh, I'll see you soon. And um, that's it. I love you. Talk to you later. That's the sound of my dad playing with my brother's son, his grandson. I had the feeling that there wasn't going to be too many times left for that kind of thing. Here's your ball. Hey, Milo. Over here, buddy. Got the pop-up. 
By this time, the medical news was only getting worse. The cancer was not contained to his lung any longer. It was in his lymph node system. That's stage four, the last stage. By this time, my brother didn't have to tell me the survival rates. We knew they were very low. So there was this idea of me filming with my dad. I don't remember if I suggested it first or my mom did, but it was there. I could use this time that we had to film something special with him, a kind of personal documentary like the one I did for my grandfather in the nursing home, but much grander in scope. We could drive to his childhood home together in Northeast Philadelphia. He could tell me stories of his elementary school and the first baseball fields that he played on. We could go to West Virginia and Pittsburgh where he went to university and decided to pursue a career in psychology. He could tell me about having his heart broken and the woman he was engaged to before he married my mom, but he could have showed me the place in Pittsburgh where he first met my mom. I think it was at a Hillel party and the place he proposed to her. I could have filmed with him at all the baseball fields he coached at. I could have filmed him at Lehigh University, a place where he would become sort of a legend in his field of academia. There are textbooks with his name on them and school psychologists all over the country who pass through his classroom. We would have certainly filmed a lot at Lehigh. It was a place that he loved, and I would later learn loved him back in a way I never really understood. We could have even filmed in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he dropped me off at college. And we could have filmed at places I never even knew. It could have been a great film, and we would have had this video to watch whenever we wanted. And my brother's children, who were very young, could watch it when they grew older and see the places that were special to Pops and Pops being vibrant and alive in them. But the thing about being in a film like that that is difficult is that the subject has to admit that he is dying. My dad did not want to die, and he did not want to think that he was dying. In that final year of his life, every time I would come home, I would casually ask if I should bring the camera and maybe we could do a little filming. He would just say, uh, maybe next time. This time's going to be a little busy, okay? I would pause for a bit, paralyzed with a billion thoughts, but simply respond with, sure. That busy thing was not just an excuse, though. My dad stayed busy until the end. He never retired from Lehigh. In fact, he was still teaching a class when he died. Only a couple people knew he was sick there. He didn't want sympathy. He didn't want pity. He didn't want anyone to know. He just wanted to keep working. The dean of his college didn't even know. So I never filmed that film. And even when his coughing became a bit labored and we didn't even bother with the health news updates, he still just gave that same maybe next time answer when I would ask about filming. And I would still respond with that same, sure. My mom helped take care of this delusion for him in that final year. I don't say that in a snarky way. I think that taking care of someone's delusion can be an act of care. She would nudge him as far as she felt he would appreciate and then back off. But when he suggested that they head down to their Florida home for a little break before coming back to Allentown so he could finish teaching the spring semester, she did ask him, are you sure that's a good idea? She tells me that he hesitated just for a moment before saying, yeah, I'll be fine. She called me from Florida a few days later to tell me that they were going into the hospital to just get something checked out. He was feeling pretty weak, and maybe he was reacting badly to the treatment. My mom would still try to downplay the seriousness of the events until the end. She didn't want to upset me or my brother, or maybe herself. 
but the worry in her voice was shaky. It had been almost exactly one year since his diagnosis. The internet had told my brother that time was just about up. A few days later, she called me and told me that the hospital recommended shifting him to a nearby hospice where they could continue treatment and perhaps he would be more comfortable. She ended that phone call by saying, maybe you should bring the camera. Check out a new camera. It did. It's nice. Nice. Nice uh, yeah. So, what do, you want, what do you want to know, Joy? <laughs> <laughs> Where should we start? This is going to be a collective effort with all of us. Where should we start? You don't really need to see this shot. He's there, but he's kind of drugged up. My brother's in the shot holding my dad's hand. He's crying. We tried for a little bit to tell a few stories and see if he wanted to talk. He may have, but frankly, he was a lousy talent at this point. The video is not the great film and grand treasure that we'd watch every year. I don't know what this was. I guess in the end, it was this. What do I do uh, next week? That, uh, when I was supposed to like fly back and just don't check oh, in. Just cancel. There were a few special moments, though. Like when we talked about the Philadelphia Phillies and how we told them we'd go to a game. Philadelphia. Yeah. That's enough. And the story of how he proposed to my mom. We're going to go see 2001 Space Odyssey at Pitt. And I had prepared it. I made dinner one of my three or four meals and then took out the guitar and sung John Denver song. Follow me. At the end of the last line, I asked Mom to marry me. And I think he said yes. At first I thought, was that part of the song? <laughs> there were no delusions to maintain here now. My dad, Edward Shapiro, was dying. And our only job left was to help him do it. He wasn't entirely convinced yet, though. The doctor would come in at some point during the day to check a few vital signs. He would ask how it looked and when he might get better. She was nice but didn't lie to him. I remember one time while sitting on the end of the bed, he turned to my mom and said, I'm never going to get out of here, am I? The final moment of his fight to give up that delusion involved a catheter tube. He had a thing about peeing in those final days that I'll never really understand. If there's some secret explanation about his fear of not being able to urinate, he took it with him to the grave. For some reason, that was the line for him. If you put a tube in his urethra, he was a goner. He was so dismayed by it that the nurse suggested that they could put him on heavy medication that would kind of knock him out so he really wouldn't feel the insertion of the tube. There's something kind of silly about that last paragraph, but it was heavy and serious. This was it. There was no miracle turnarounds, no cures, the end. And the dean of his college still didn't even know that he wouldn't be coming home. 
After his final excruciating and I think humiliating experience of trying to urinate when he didn't even have the strength to stand, my mom and I had to hold him up under each arm. He knew that that was it. The nurse came in with the medicine that would sort of knock him out until his last breath. We didn't know how far away that would be, but we knew it was a matter of days. He turned to my mom and told her that she better call his dean and tell him he wouldn't be coming back. My mom nodded and fought back tears. I held his hand as he got comfortable, and the nurse injected him and sent him into a sort of pleasant twilight. My mom stepped out on the porch area to make the call. I stayed in the room with my brother and my now sleepy father, who no longer had to worry about peeing for himself. The moment was thick, quiet, peaceful, and crushingly sad. My mom came back in after a few moments. I could see her eyes were wet and red. She placed his phone that she had just used to make that final call on the bedside table and held his hand. We looked at my dad and we all just breathed together. Just breathed. My mom looked after the third or fourth ding. The distraction from her sadness may have been even welcome at that point. As she saw a few notifications pop up, she said, Well, I guess the word is out. I always had this idea that my father was a kind of superhero in his field, but I never expected this. My mom picked up his phone after another buzz and realized it was an email, and another, and another. They were students, colleagues, long-forgotten friends. My mom was shocked by the names. She would turn to me and say things like, I can't believe this. She must have been a student of your dad's when you were five years old. Or, oh, Ed, I loved this colleague. They were addressed to him, and we tried to read them to him. He was sleepy, but still very much with it. When my mom would say, Ed, you won't believe this, but so-and-so wrote this to you, he would shrug. He wasn't surprised one bit. We tried to read them out loud. I don't know if we made it more than a few lines before choking on our tears. Sometimes my brother would take over and read a line before he would have to hand the phone off to me so I could try to finish. And before I would reach the end, another email would have arrived. And that's how it went for four days until he died. The three of us passing the phone around the bed and reading letters of gratitude and love for my father. My mom has since collected all those emails and printed them in a book which I have in front of me now. The cover is white with a photo of my father on it. She simply titled it, The Letters. Dearest Ed, I was just thinking of you today. Ed, I just received the very sad news from George. Then I got an email from Lori Rose about your illness. George says your wife is... George says your wife is reading you your emails. I wanted to take the opportunity to tell you how much I had been thinking of dear Ed. I had been thinking how you and I started at Lehigh at the same time. Express how much your friendship and support have been one of the greatest joys of my professional of my professional life. You are an incredible teacher, mentor, and inspiration to me. I never told you. I never told you, but you always reminded me of my Jesus, I never told you, but you always reminded me a little of my dad, which was a comfort to me during my time at Lehigh. I imagine you angry railing at this thing, 
that's the ad I know, take no prisoners. But then I think how much you meant to so many of us and how we would want you to have peace and comfort. So my prayer is for that, peace and comfort. Your life has been well lived and lives on in the smiles of your children and in the memories of your friends. If you rally, I'll give you grief about not telling me. This is our goodbye. Once again, my love and gratitude, old friend. How I will miss you. There was this one moment when we were all at the foot of his bed discussing who was going to get dinner and who was going to stay. We never left his bedside alone during that final week. He was in a state of deep drowsiness and mostly sleeping. As we were discussing who was taking the car, when and where, we heard him whisper something. By this point, the strength in his voice was nearly gone. He must have heard us talking about leaving. When we leaned in and asked him to repeat what he said, with his eyes closed, he strained out the words, Don't disappear. I remember as a kid when we were afraid of lightning storms, our parents would tell us to count the seconds between when we saw the flash of lightning and heard the crash of thunder, a trick involving the difference in the speed of light and sound. When the times got longer and longer, you knew the storm was leaving. I remember watching his inhales and exhales the next two days in a similar way. Sometimes I counted the distance between them, and I could calculate him drifting further away. My brother, my mom, and I watched this slowing until finally an exhale lingered forever, never to be followed by its opposite inhale. My brother wailed, and my mom held him in the corner. The funeral was well attended. The rabbi came to the house to lead us in the mourner's cottage while we were sitting shiva. I remember my grandparents, my dad's parents, crying hysterically while reciting the prayer. My grandfather kept saying, you aren't supposed to say this for your son. It was very hard. I have a friend who once described the feeling she had after her mom died like this. You can't locate them anymore. Like when they were alive, you may have been far from them or had not seen them in a while but you could kind of always place them somewhere on a map in your mind. But now, it's like my mom is nowhere. I keep looking in my mind, but I can't find her. I think that description is pretty accurate. I still can't even believe that it happened. He was 64 years old. He also never smoked a cigarette in his life. He would have wanted me to tell you that. When he would tell that to doctors after they saw lung cancer on his form, they would suddenly become much more empathetic. I always thought that was interesting and kind of sad. I can't locate my father either. He's not in his grave, at least not to me. The rituals around the headstones don't really do much for me. His body is there. He wanted to be buried in his work clothes with a copy of his most famous textbook. But I don't locate him there. We used to watch just about every Phillies game together, or at least talk about how the season was going when I would see him. He embedded a love of the Phillies in me and my brother. My mom grew to love them too. 
they ended up getting season tickets together with a pair of seats down the third baseline in the lower deck. That's where I can locate him, in those seats at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. For two years after his death, none of us watched more than an inning here or there of a Phillies game. I think we were afraid of it, afraid that missing him would be too much or afraid to discover that we could no longer enjoy it, that it was intertwined with our relationship to him in a way that we weren't previously aware of. For two seasons, we broached the subject lightly in phone calls or family gatherings. I told my mom that I thought we should all try to go to a game. We were in a car on the way down to spend time with my brother's kids. I think my mom suggested it first. We were trying to pretend like it was a normal thing just going to catch a game. A fun thing for the kids to do. An excuse to hang out outside and eat some junk food. You know, just a family outing. I remember walking into the stadium that night that we finally went. My heart was racing. I could feel my mom's heart beating too. My brother had his kids to distract him, but in between the fatherly duties, I could see him projecting memories to the places and games that we had here with dad. The great games and playoff games and terrible losses. The conversations about life and work. We got seats as close to their season tickets as we could get. They were just a few rows up in front of us. Someone else was sitting in them. Just like someone else has my dad's phone number. I took a few solo laps around the stadium and just thought about my dad. My brother's kids had their fill after seven innings or so, and we hugged and they left. My mom and I stayed to watch the last few innings. The game wasn't very eventful and the Phillies were slogging their way to another loss in another humdrum season. Fans started to make their way to the exits before the obvious conclusion to the game. The people who had been in my dad's seats had left. They were empty. I think all I had to say to prompt our movement was, should we? As we sat down in those seats, me where my dad always sat, my mom where my mom always sat. I felt that I could locate him. The angle of home plate was the one he knew. This is where he was. The Phillies lost, and we lingered for a while as the stadium emptied. Tears in our eyes. We turned to each other after a while, nodded, and stood up to leave. We didn't even need words. I don't like the phrase moving on or letting go, but I suppose this essay is a sort of ceremony for something I'm unsure if I even need to do. I'm looking at him in my phone again. I want to call him. profile now and if I scroll to the bottom I can delete the contact my fingers hovering over the button but I just and you hit the delete button and it brings up another confirm delete contact
I just can't do it.